0: On episode 235 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to create a fitness plan to level up your tennis game with special guest, Dr.
1: Mark Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now here's your host, Merban Iranshad.
0: Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. And today I have a great interview with Dr. Mark Kovacs. Uh, If you are a listener of the podcast for at least the past few months, I would say, then you know about Dr. Kovacs, and he has been on the podcast several times as well as my tennis summits. He is a performance physiologist, researcher, professor, author, speaker, and coach with an extensive background training and researching elite athletes. Dr. Kovacs is the founder of the International Tennis Performance Association, of which I am a member of, and the Kovacs Institute. And the ITPA has members in over 38 countries and is the leading tennis fitness performance and injury prevention association in the world. And I highly encourage you to check out the ITPA at www.itpa-tennis.org, and I'll have the links in the show notes page. Dr. Kovacs has trained numerous top professional tennis players, including John Isner, Sloan Stevens, Sam Querrey, Donald Young, and Melanie Udin, and. Very cool thing that has happened recently is Dr. Kovacs has created and now co-hosts a show, a podcast called The Doc and Pro Show featuring Dr. Kovacs and professional golfer Jason Bone, where they talk about tennis, golf, sports, and life, and how you can improve your sports performance. Jason, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. (laughs) Um, But in any case, very cool show that you should check out as well. Uh, And again, check out the show notes for all the links. To today's show. Um, So with that today, we're going to talk with Dr. Kovacs about how you can create a simple and effective fitness plan, the equipment that you need to pull this off properly. um, And you'll be surprised at how little you need to have a great fitness uh, workout and how to structure your workouts and how you can do so even with a limited amount of time. As I know, we're busy adults who want to play in leagues, um, but we have a family and, and other things going on. So that'll be really, really helpful. And as well as the ins and outs of you know, what specific areas of the body we should work on and how to determine what we need, uh, how to improve our endurance, how to lose weight, um, what types of different um, exercise classes out there there are and and which ones may help more than others and a lot of other great things as well. So I really hope that you enjoy this interview with Dr. Kovacs. I certainly did. And this is definitely one of the ones that I'm going to go back through multiple times, jot notes and implement to improve my performance on the court. And I hope you will too. So with that, here's my interview with the legendary Dr. Mark Kovacs everybody welcome to another episode of the Tennis Falls podcast and it's always a pleasure to have on uh, my friend Dr. Mark Kovacs uh, Dr. Kovacs has been a return guest uh, I featured him several times on the podcast and on my tennis summits uh, because he's fantastic uh you know he studies and and you know preaches what he has researched um, and so uh, really excited to have you back on your fan favorite as well Mark so thanks so much for coming back on to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Always enjoy getting on with you, talking tennis, and really excited to be here.
0: Oh, definitely. Thanks, Mark. And I, I do just want to shout out um, your new podcast. You know, I was uh, checking out my emails from the Kovacs Institute, and then I uh, found out that you, uh, you're a co host of the, the Doc and Pro show, which is really cool, um, with your co host, uh, Jason uh, Bone. Is, am I pronouncing that right?
2: Yeah, so this was a fun project. So myself and uh, Jason. Jason's actually a professional golfer, I've been on the PGA Tour for many, many years. I uh, Won a, a couple of PGA titles. Played every course in in the country. The you know he's played all the major slams. Um, and he's just a great guy, really a fun guy that gives us a perspective on uh, being a professional athlete, but in a different sport. So we talk a lot about tennis and golf and similarities, differences. And uh, then we have on a, a lot of really interesting guests from the coaching world, from the training world. And it's really trying to talk a little bit about human performance and being being the best you can and learning from athletes, but trying to do it in a way that's a little bit lighter. Um, he's much more humorous than I am. So it's good to have a co-host that can, can tell jokes and keep it light. I try to bring a little bit more of the science and you know discuss You know some of these topics in certain areas in depth uh and it's 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 been a lot of fun so we're excited so yeah if people want to check it out it's called the doc and pro show it's available where all all podcasts are uh or go to the Kovacs institute site and and look up for more information as well
0: yeah awesome mark and yeah i actually was listening to some episodes on my uh way to tennis today fortunately we had a day off and i got to play and i uh heard an interview with uh, Ho- Jose H- Higueras, as well as some um, both of you just talking about um, you know the changes in in fitness over the years and everything. So it was really really fun to hear about that. I do want to try and focus today's episode on adult competitive players and how they can improve their fitness training. And I was wondering, you know, we have this common prototype of um, adult players who really want to improve their fitness, but they're constrained by time. And so I was curious, you know, if we could just give, um, if I could give you just like a a common scenario of of an adult player who has maybe like five to six hours per week, and they want to figure out, you know, how much time to partition, you know, in between like actually train like playing tennis, and you know, your mobility and flexibility, and you know, maybe some agility, and then you've got, you know, resistance training and other things, uh, recovery. So I was curious if you could kind of give us some guidance, or these players some guidance into how they can best kind of allocate that and any other factors that they should think about when allocating that time towards different activities?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's actually something we spend quite a bit of time on. Um, we've got a fellowship program at the Institute and one of our fellows this uh, year is actually uh, spending their entire time on the uh, adult recreational player and the fitness programming around that. So There's a few things that you need to keep in mind. One is what are your deficiencies because you want to personalize it a little bit to yourself. If you've got, say, good endurance and you were maybe a a former athlete that ran a lot and you've got good um, cardiovascular endurance and that's not an area that really needs a lot of your time, then you can pull that off off the training list a little bit or make it lower down on the priority list. Um, which is good. Or you may have really good strength in general, and you're just a, a strength athlete that you, you like to lift weights. You lift weights all the time. That's something you enjoy. So that's going to sort of be in your program. Uh, but you don't have to overemphasize it because you already have a good level of it. And that's usually what I first recommend: is do a needs analysis on yourself. Understand what are the areas that you need to get better in. Go to a resource, a, a coach, a trainer, someone that has experience, and ask them what are the areas that I'm sort of lacking or that could help my tennis more? Could be mobility, it could be strength, it could be endurance, it could be power, Um, and then prioritize your list of training. That's first and foremost, because you can't do everything at the max level. Uh, Most people don't have time to do that. So that's the first step. Then based on that, you wanna make sure when you do do strength training, traditional kind of strength exercises, lunges, you know, things like that, you wanna hit that at least twice a week at a bare minimum. Ideally, you want to try to get three sessions in. There's a lot of very good research showing that two sessions a week, let's say a total body strength training workout provides a lot more benefit than one session a week. But three sessions a week is even better obviously than two. But the difference between two and three isn't as high as the difference between two and one. So. At a bare minimum two sessions a week needs to be on the sch- schedule. Um, that's really, really important. Then as you age, you know that you lose power, you lose muscle mass uh, after, you know, after mid to late 30s, it starts to drop pretty significantly if you don't train. So you need to put in the training, but power is one of those areas that most older players don't spend enough time doing power training. You know, then that's something that you get a lot of really good benefit. The only challenge is you got to be a bit careful because you've got to build up to those movements and make sure that you're doing them with good technique. So typically, if you're going to do it based on hours, and I don't love giving recommendations always by hours because it doesn't take into account quality, uh, or even quantity of what the work is. But in general, most people think in time. So. If you're trying to strength train at least three hours a week, if you can get, you know, strength training, and that includes warm-up for the strength training, that includes a little bit of cool-down. Uh, that may even include, say, a lot of your injury prevention work as well. So when I say three hours, um, your whole session may be, let's say, an hour at a time, but you do 20 minutes of heavier strength work, you know, 20 minutes of speed and power type work, Um, And then you've got 20 minutes of warm up, cool down and some injury prevention stuff. So that's sort of a bare bones minimum level of three hours on that. Then definitely want to do some mobility and stability training. And the older you are, the more of that you need to do. So uh, usually recommend at least, you know, three sessions a week of about 20 to 30 minutes. So, you know, then you're at four and a half hours. Uh, And then if you're trying to, if you've got a couple extra hours a week, Then you can put in around that, maybe some more on-court movement stuff. Or if you need a bit more endurance work, you can do more endurance work. But four and a half hours a week, you can get a really, really great program in, uh, into your training program. And then anything above that, you can, you know, really focus in on areas that you're trying to, you know, take to another level.
0: Uh, Awesome stuff, Mark. Really appreciate that. I jotted down some follow up questions. First off, I was just curious, um, from a physiological standpoint, I guess, if that's even the right word, the the one session a week versus two sessions, I was wondering why. uh, What is the reason that there's such a huge jump between one to two?
2: It's a great question, and a lot of this was strength training specific research. So it's looking at muscle fiber recruitment. It's looking at the ability to hit a certain area of the body on multiple occasions to get the adaptation so it's got a lot to do with the physiological response to stress and you know physical training is stress and we have to understand the the difference between anabolic and catabolic processes and simply put when you're working out when you're training you're actually putting your body into a catabolic state or a breakdown you're breaking down your body every time you train physically but you give it time to recover which spurs the anabolic process, and that's the muscle growth, muscle repair, and the adaptation to an imposed demand. So the more times you can get an imposed demand on those areas, the more adaptation you get, the better results you have. That's why training two times a week is better than training one. Training three is better than two, but then you also get a uh, diminishing returns. As you train more times per week, You actually push your body if you're doing the same workout let's say if you're doing the exact same total body routine if you do it four or five or six times a week you actually can one injure yourself potentially and overtrain but two you don't get the same response the body doesn't adapt as well if you do too many sessions a week on the same thing so that's the real reason why and some of the you know research behind why two times a week is sort of that minimum sweet spot um, and definitely a lot better than one one time per week.
0: Thanks, Mark. And is there any advantage besides, um, you know, time constraints to doing a full body workout versus uh breaking it out into certain um, body areas or parts? Yeah. So no,
2: there's a lot of ways you can split up programs, and you know, with the athletes I work with, we change the routines based on their time abilities, their areas of focus, the needs analysis. So the most common is. A total body workout, because a lot of it is time, people want to go in and get a full session done at once. Uh, You can do the same exercises, let's say a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or a Monday, Thursday, or a Monday, Thursday, Saturday. So you give a day or two in between. um, And it's simple. That's why people like it. But a lot of what we do is we try to get in the, the weight room or the gym more than two or three times a week. So we may be in there five, six days a week, but doing different things. So we may do, some people like doing an upper and lower body split. I don't often do that with tennis players. I do that with other sport athletes and um, individuals. But with tennis, because it's so uh, important to hit the, the lower body so frequently because it's a movement sport, we usually have a lower body emphasis on every workout with an upper body component. Um, but then we sometimes you can do a... Front and backside of the body split as well. That's a relatively common way of doing it for certain sports. Again, not so much on tennis because we need to do a lot of posterior chain work, backside of the body work. So doing front side of the body and backside of the body is a traditional bodybuilding split model, which I don't personally utilize very much for athletes, but it's something that you may hear about. The other th- areas that I do split it, what, how we do it a lot is we actually have a power-focused day, meaning that a lot of what we work on that day is power-focused. So, you know, lighter weight, more explosive movements. Uh, then we have a heavier strength day where we actually go heavier, less reps, heavier weight, and that's a focus. And then we have another day where for most athletes, we'll do a, a tennis-specific endurance circuit. This is looking at more Endurance work, but with a strength component. So, can you do, say, 20 lunges with light weight in different directions without fatiguing? That builds up a little leg endurance work. So, that's usually how we set up our weeks. It's an undulated, periodized model. And the reason we do it is we can increase and decrease the volume and intensity if an athlete has a tournament that week or if they don't. Because a lot of the athletes that we work with may play. 15 to 25 tournaments a year some even a bit higher than that and we need to continue building throughout the year so we'll do weeks where it'll be very heavy on the uh, on the volume and the intensity and then there'll be weeks where our volume will be a lot less still relatively high intensity but if if their normal total volume for that week i'll give you like an arbitrary number um is 800 on our scale A tournament week, and it's an important tournament, their volume may be 150. So it's significantly less, but they're still doing something. But their real goal that week is to be fresh for the tournament, focus on recovery, focus on getting the body to play at the highest level possible.
0: Got it, Mark. So, you know, in the um, USA League world, I guess, you know, we have certain really important uh, tournaments, if you will, I guess, like um, regionals and sectionals and nationals. So, can we similarly then use this undulating periodization model to like, you know, ramp, you know, ramp down like during like around that time of the tournaments basically. Yeah,
2: exactly. That's the beauty of it is you can ramp up or down, um, from week to week, which is what tennis needs to do. We don't have the luxury always of, you know, with leagues, it's a little bit easier than say a traditional, you know, junior tournament or professional tournament schedule because you sort of know when those events are, you know, a season out, you know, sort of majority of the time when your matches are, unless you're in a flex league, if you're in a flex league, it's a little more challenging, but a traditional league, you sort of know you may have a match on Saturday or you have a match on Tuesday, and you know, that's your day for matches. So you can build your training around those match days, which is awesome. It's similar to college tennis in that respect. You sort of know when your matches are, You sort of know the teams that you're playing and if you know your level and you've played in a certain league for a few years you sort of know which teams are better which teams aren't as good um, most of the time so you can actually even prioritize and this is what we do with our college teams that we work with Uh, we prioritize matches so if we're playing a certain club and they're always really good they always recruit well they always have good players you know, they're going to be a priority one, meaning that we got to be playing it our best. We may not train as hard that week off-court because we want to be as fresh as possible for that match, but we know we're going to play another match the following week that they're not always as good, and we should be able to win pretty well there. So we're going to train through, in a way, that week, and we're not going to adjust our, our workload down to be fresher for that match because we, we know we've got bigger matches coming up, and we treat it more as a training week, so you can do the exact same kind of professional or collegiate schedule for an adult league player and team as you know some of the best players in the world do and that's the beauty about tennis is just because your level of tennis and the type of tennis you're playing maybe isn't on t v doesn't mean you can't train like the pros
0: right, right, yeah, I appreciate you know experts like you bringing that knowledge to us um how we can use the pros training in our uh, routines regarding a uh, posterior chain work i just wanted to highlight that and j- just for you know the viewers and listeners that don't quite know exactly what that is could you kind of explain that and then maybe like what types of exercises would constitute posterior chain work
2: it's, yeah that's yeah, that's a great 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 comment to make because posterior chain really just describing the backside of the body um so when you're thinking about posterior chain it's really the, uh, a little bit of the lower back, uh, the glutes, the hamstrings, the calves. And it's usually the need to improve uh, the strength in those muscle groups because most athletes, and especially in tennis, because of how the sport's played, our body weight is always shifted forward. We're always in that ready position. Our coaches always tell us, get in the ready position, be in that athletic stance, the return position on the return of serve. Uh, the volley position, get low, lean forward, all those things that we are taught on the tennis court, shift the weight forward into the front side of our body or the anterior chain muscles, uh, which are the quads, the hip flexors, things like that. And those are very strong typically, just by playing tennis, you strengthen those. Uh, our back side of the body, the posterior chain, unfortunately doesn't get a lot of extra work when we play, so this becomes this discrepancy between the front side of our body and the back side of our body. And if you increase that discrepancy over time, you start getting major imbalances and you get a lot of knee related pain, hip related pain because of this strength differential. So why we say we do a lot of posterior chain work is we're trying to limit that difference between what the sport's forcing us to do in being in those good ready positions but it's also needing us to strengthen the backside of our body or the posterior chain. So we usually recommend a minimum of two times as many uh, posterior chain movements as anterior. And for many of our athletes, we'll actually do three times. So when we say three times, what we're talking about is we're going to do three times as many hamstring-focused exercises as quad-focused exercises. So that's a way to try to offset all the extra work that we're getting on court moving and also the historical adaptations that we've had over many years of playing. So when we say posterior chain, typically what we mean is hamstring related strengthening exercises, glute related strengthening exercises. So think of things like if you're familiar with strength training, um, you know, various Romanian deadlifts or deadlift variations that put a lot more, um, emphasis on the hamstring glute strengthening work, such as hip bridges, uh, things like that, various things, hip thrusters, there's all sorts of variations of exercises you can do to target that backside or posterior side of the body.
0: Thanks, Mark. And are there any tests or any ways to figure out, I don't know, how much of a ratio we need? I know you mentioned minimum is a two to one for uh posterior to anterior chain, but um, any, any sorts of tests or ways to, to figure that out?
2: So we, we have some, you know, uh, equipment and technology we utilize to actually st- uh, test hamstring strength, quad strength, things like that. Uh, it's not so easy to do on your own from a pure strength test standpoint. Um, so you, you, you want to do a few different things. First off, what for most people, what I say is do a wall sit. And everyone can do a wall sit. I think most people are familiar with that. Make sure that your n- knee angle, though, is at 90 degrees when you're sitting there. Meaning that the angle is like this. If this is, if this is your backside, your backside's not high like that. It's actually at that 90 degrees. And that's the position. And if you can hold that for 60 seconds, usually means your quads are pretty strong um, mm-hmm. and you may have some reasonably good stability on your glutes. So that's step one. If you're, you can do that, then you do have to somewhat be concerned about your hamstring um, strength because most of the time, people that are really good at that, Means that their quad, you know, strength and, and development is reasonably good. The next thing that you want to sometimes do is perform a, you know, a hamstring hip lift, and it's hard to sort of demo it here. But mm-hmm. basically, you're trying to put your foot on the ground on one leg, heel on the ground, uh, and then the other leg points straight in the sky, and you want to lift yourself up using your hamstring. And if you can do ten of those without shaking usually means you've got reasonably good base hamstring strength uh above and beyond that then you have to start adding resistance to test things out and to see how comparable you are the one thing is if you were going to do let's say a a squat compared to a rdl which is you know pretty much an opposing movement in some respects uh on the body parts that they're focused on they're not going to have a one-to-one strength relationship it's not going to be like if you can do 100 pounds on one you should be able to do 100 pounds on the other. doesn't really work that way based on uh, the levers of the body and how your body, especially your hips, hinge. So you can't do a direct comparison from that standpoint very easily. What we do is we have some technology that measures strength in certain movements, and you can do some comparisons that way. But this kind of gives you a sense of you want to do more hamstring and posterior chain work and that's why we usually use some rules of thumb based on what we know about tennis athletes. Most tennis athletes are sort of similar creatures, especially if they've played a lot. They have similar limitations, similar restrictions, similar areas where they're strong, similar areas where they're weak. The challenge becomes if players pick up tennis late, you don't always know what they look like, or if they've played multiple other sports at a relatively high level, that may have developed certain muscle groups in a very different way.
0: Thanks. It's brilliant stuff, Mark. Appreciate it. Is there any correlation between tightness in, in an area and, and strength? I just kind of random question I thought of. You know, like, say if you have chronically tight hamstrings, does that necessarily mean that you're weaker in it or strong in a certain area or anything like that? Yeah,
2: so there isn't a correlation between strength and and flexibility so it's a great point you made because they're two variables that are very different some of the strongest people in the world are very tight and that's one of the reasons Mm -hmm. why they're so strong um because they don't have a lot of range to go through but the range Mm -hmm. they have they can load it very very well so as long as they stay in that limited range it's relatively safe and they can lift a lot of weight but The problem for individuals like that is you're strong in that narrow range. The moment you get outside that range or you get stretched to your end range, bad stuff can happen. So from a tennis standpoint, having a lack of mobility or range of motion is in most parts of the body is a real limitation because on the tennis court, you're always being pushed to your end range on a wide ball, on a short ball, when you're lunging, when you're having to stop rapidly and change direction. So you don't have the luxury of only playing in a really short range. Like let's say if I was doing the bench press in the weight room, you know your range. It doesn't increase or decrease. You have a a finite range and you don't have to be any more flexible than that range. And all you have to do is increase how strong you can be in that range and you're going to be very safe. You're going to be safe because that's the range that you're training for. On tennis, because it's a reactive sport, we respond to emergency situations every point nearly. We're running, we're jumping, we're landing, we're changing directions, we're you know pivoting, we're doing all these things. So the more functional range we have, and I use the term functional range because there's plenty of people that can stretch and get a certain range, but they can't load that range, meaning mm-hmm. that they're not strong in that end range. And your functional range is the range that you can actually load into, you can actually put weight into and be useful. Uh, So it's really, really important to make sure that you train both, not just strength, because it doesn't correlate to flexibility or range of motion. And just training range of motion and mobility doesn't automatically cause you to be stronger in those areas. So you have to do both and you have to understand
1: how they work together
0: So, Mark, what's the process for gradually increasing our functional range?
2: So that's great. So there's a lot of work over the last probably ten years talking about the difference between mobility and stability. Because mobility, easiest way to think about it, is increasing range. Trying to increase your range. But you have to be stable in those ranges. So you have to do a combination of Increasing your range, like I think most people historically have understood stretching, you know, static stretching, or even dynamic stretching, and uh, is the ability to increase your range through a certain uh, distance. And there's multiple ways to do that. Um, There's assisted stretching where someone stretches you. You can stretch yourself. uh, You can do a bunch of different movements to increase that range of motion. But then you also want to develop stability, which many times can be correlated with strength up to a point. Uh, Meaning that you wanna be stable typically on one leg, in one arm, in a certain range that you've developed. So single leg squats, single leg movements, things like that uh, is talking a lot about how stable you are. The more stable your core region is, you know, your abdominals, your lower back, that entire core region, the better you are in a lot of those single leg movements. So you may have hip, a lot of the time you'll hear about hip instability, your hips unstable, or you don't have good stability in your hip. That may or may not be true, meaning that it may show up in the hip and there's some structural limitations in the hip that may cause that instability. But a lot of the time it may be ankle instability that's causing the hip to give out. It may be core instability it's causing your hip to give out. so we we talk a lot about there's certain joints in the body that want to be stable and there's certain joints in the body that want to be mobile. So you have to understand how to train the entire
0: chain to make sure that you're training it the right way. this is brilliant stuff, Mark. In terms of um, the let's say um a player wants to lose uh, lose weight so they can get you know quicker and obviously more healthy as well. Uh, what does the li- literature say in terms of what they should be doing, you know, in terms of obviously, you know, um, high intensity versus low intensity, uh, resistance training, et cetera. What would you, I mean, of course, you know, diet's a huge part. But what, what, what training would you suggest for these individuals?
2: Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a really important area of all movement-based. The lighter you are, typically, the faster you will be if you don't change anything else meaning that no other part of your training has changed. Why? Because you're just carrying less weight and we're talking body fat predominantly. Muscle's a little bit different because muscle's a force generator, but fat doesn't produce force. It just takes up energy and easily, you know, simply put, you add a 30 pound weight vest to someone and ask them to run around the tennis court, it's really, really hard. You take that 30 pound weight vest off, it feels a lot easier. It's the same as if you're carrying 30 extra pounds of weight. So you've got to understand the value of appropriate body composition. It makes you a better tennis player and it also protects your joints, which a lot of people understand in theory, but don't really understand the impact of that. You know, having an extra 10, 20, 30 pounds of excess body weight, sometimes the muscle itself may not be valuable, but most of the time we're talking about body fat here and the the, quick, the quicker you can lose that, you know, excess weight, the better it is not only for performance but also for injury prevention from a joint-specific standpoint. So that's sort of number one. Uh, the nutrition side you do have to touch on because it's really, really hard for most recreational players without focusing on nutrition to lose a significant amount of uh, of, of body fat. You have to understand the basic, you know, the structure of how people you know, lose, lose body fat. We know fat's approximately 3,500 calories per pound. Um, so you have to have a calorie deficit of around 3,500 uh, calories to lose a pound. Um, it's not much more complicated than that. There's different ways to go about it, but in a general sense, you gotta find ways to create that deficit. And it can be through exercise alone, meaning you've got to find, if you want to lose a pound a week, you want to find at least 3,500 calories extra in your exercise routine. And that's not only the time you exercise, but if you do heavy strength training, you get this effect, this knock-on effect of increasing core temperature, increase in adaptation that occurs after you stop working out throughout the day that increases your metabolic rate, which burns more calories throughout the day. Like a strength training session, for most people, at most is maybe 500 calories they're going to burn in a strength training session. If you go play a a, a really great set of singles tennis, you may burn 700, 800 at most. You know, you've got to really, book, really, really play something, uh, you know, like a, a cardio tennis session where it's nonstop, no rest. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be playing a match. You'd do, be doing drills for an hour without any rest. You may be able to push to a thousand calories in in an hour. But it's really hard to do, and you probably couldn't do that for two hours. That you would be completely spent if you did it for an hour. So you've got to understand how difficult it is to just lose a lot of body fat just by exercise alone. You have to combine improving your nutrition, cutting back on certain things in an appropriate way. You know, most of the time we're talking about you know excess fluids that are calorie based. That's relatively easy to change. Um, it's sources. It's dress, salad dressing, things like that, making smart choices. It's removing you know, a lot of the fried foods from the diet, things that aren't necessarily a huge change, but make a significant difference over the course of a week or a month. So the biggest thing you want to do is you want to have heavier strength training because it helps with your metabolic rate throughout the day. And you want to try to do calorie-rich um, you know, exercise routines that burn a lot of calories in a relatively short amount of time, if you are looking at a time saver, if time is not an issue, you can, you know, do low impact, walking, hiking, things like that. Because most people don't realize, you know, uh, you know if, if you walk a mile and run a mile, you actually burn the same amount of calories during that time period. It just takes you a lot longer to, to walk. So you burn a few extra calories after you stop be, when you run because of your core temperatures raised, the sweating response, things like that. But the actual you know, amount of calories you burn, burn walking and running is the same for the distance that you cover. Um, give or take a few nominal extra calories uh, because of the, the follow-up uh, core temperature side of things. So most people don't realize that and they think, okay, running's always better. Uh, no, I'd rather you walk five miles than run two miles. You'll get a better benefit doing that.
0: Yeah, and uh, with uh, less uh, joint impact, I would I would think. So that's great stuff. Yeah, for me, you know, uh, uh, diet-wise, I actually managed to lose a significant amount of weight uh, by just cutting out unnecessary sugars and, and also uh, cutting down my alcohol consumption. So uh, that's definitely helped a lot. Um, and we actually had... Tara Collingwood uh, on last episode, uh, she's a dietitian for uh, and a nutrition consultant for USDA. So if you need, want to learn more about that, uh, definitely check that episode out. Mark, just back to the scheduling a little bit for um training and tennis. I mean, is there any problem? Because I I would imagine some some tennis players, you know, they they heard you mention I think maybe a total of four to five hours of training. Is it okay to to be training more off the court than on the court? like is there any do you have any thoughts about that or anything?:
2: No, I mean, you know with a lot of our athletes, especially in certain times of the year, we'll train significantly more off court than on court, like mm. certain times in preseason, for example, or a training block uh, where we're working on something specific, we may do three times as much time off court than on court. but that includes recovery time, that includes mobility strengthening work, injury prevention, core work, things like that, conditioning. So when you put all those pieces together, um, it may sound like a lot compared to how much time they spend on court, but a lot of these athletes spend a significant amount of their day working on their body. Uh, Not only breaking it down through training, but also building it back up through recovery and mobility and some other things like that. So there's definitely um, value in doing it, but doing it right. Wouldn't be good just to go and say, run 30 extra miles a week off court and say that's your off court training. That by itself could be too much for many people. Um, So you've got to be smart with how you use that time. Or if we were saying, we're going to lift weights three hours a day, every day, six days a week, that's probably not a wise call either because that's going to put a lot of stress on the joints unnecessarily. And the return on your investment is not going to be great because the body's going to break down over time.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Mark. So I have a lot of friends who attend, you know, different fitness classes. And I, I did hear you mention this a little bit with Jason on on, on the podcast, the Doc and Pro show. But uh, I was wondering if there are any of them, like I guess I list, you know, a few that I wrote down are like Orange Theory and Solid Core and um, some cycling classes and so forth. Are there any in particular that you think are, you know, more well suited to tennis than the others like i'm just wondering you know in a sense are are some of my friends potentially you know not training as efficiently by going to these classes if if they want to uh focus their training on tennis if they don't then obviously that's fine but uh, any thoughts on on these different classes available and their utility
2: yeah it's 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 a phenomenal question because there's so many there's so many different boot camp variations there's so many different cycling rowing type classes things like that so The challenge is doing any of those classes consistently, and that's the only thing you do, is probably not the best strategy for training for tennis. Alternating some of those classes can be really beneficial. Um, You know, every now and then going to a rowing class for conditioning is great. Um, Doing that four days a week is probably not the best strategy because it's so limited in the range of motion and the type of movement. It doesn't transfer very well outside of cardiovascularly and there's better ways to do it. Doing a non-specific uh, high intensity interval type bootcamp workout is good for calorie burn, um, but the challenge is you may do a lot of, say, overhead throwing movements or shoulder pressing for you know, 100 reps or something like that, yeah. which many of these programs put in. And that can really do a number on you know, limitations that many tennis players already have, shoulder impingement issues, They have limited range of motion because of playing tennis for a long period of time. They've got internal shoulder rotation problems. And doing just random exercises and high rep aspects of that can actually injure them. And, you know, we we know that a lot of these boot camp classes, you know, are very good if they're taught with good instructors, but a lot of their programming is designed for how many calories can we burn in the shortest amount of time, not about, Is this going to make me a better athlete? Is this going to protect my joints in the right way? Things like that. So I always caution against doing random sort of group um, classes for a tennis player. Uh, You want to make sure that you at least go somewhere that maybe works with athletes. So they may offer some of those classes, but they also train athletes. So the person delivering the class understands the sport a little bit so they can modify certain movements, which is fine. Then there are things like pilates and yoga and some of these that do have a lot of valuable uses and unless it's a super advanced class it's unlikely to cause major injury Um, even some of those classes though yoga and things like that can put you in compromised positions for a tennis athlete meaning putting your shoulder in a position that is uncomfortable so i always recommend anytime you feel pain or discomfort back off that exercise because just because it's on the board, it's on the sheet of exercises to do, everyone else in the room's doing it, doesn't mean you should be doing it if there's any pain. And that's a really important self-check. But again, there's, I always say there's never a bad exercise. There's just a bad exercise for you. Meaning that that exercise is not appropriate for you at your stage. The volume may be too high, the resistance may be too high, the movement pattern may not fit your biomechanics currently. So. It's never the exercise's fault, but it's the program's fault for you. So you have to understand that. And it's a real tough question to answer for individual athletes because you don't know what their problems are. Someone may have a bad hip. Someone may have a bad shoulder. Someone may have torn their ACL twice and they can't load a certain way. So there's always a program that's best for you. But again, it's important to, to, to keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, thanks, Marcus. I think I recall you and Jason talking about how you know somebody can't just take like a pro's routine and copy it exactly. They have to, as we talked about earlier in the show, and, and just now, kind of allocate according to their strengths and weaknesses and what they need. So, um, yeah, I mean,
2: I'll give you an example yeah. right now. I work with three uh, ladies on the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, and they play different positions. You know, one's a goalkeeper. You know, one one plays you know center back, and one's a forward, and they're on completely different programs. I mean, they don't even look similar in what they do. Um, One person has to lift way heavier than someone else because of their position and what they're trying to accomplish. One has a great training base and can handle certain movements. Uh, One has had a few prior injuries that are limiting certain movements. So just within even a a team sport, um, the workouts are completely different. So from a tennis standpoint, and with older, you know, adults and recreational players that may have a history that is very different than who they're playing with or against, it's really, really important to personalize some of this stuff.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mark. Just curious, um, what sport is would you say is most similar? Like, I guess when you're putting out a, a training for somebody, you know, given uh, taking account like the variable variables of different people, like. What sport would you say is actually like fairly similar in, in the way you train the athletes uh, to, to tennis, if, if there is one? It's,
2: it's hard because every sport is pretty different. Like, mm-hmm. for example, soccer has some valuable footwork things that is useful for tennis, but their distances mm-hmm. are a lot longer. And most soccer players don't need certain things that tennis players need from an upper body standpoint. So you've got a completely different training program for the upper body. Uh, baseball pitching has a lot of valuable components for the upper body that we utilize with tennis players. But everything else about how to train a baseball player, especially a pitcher, is sort of you know irrelevant because they don't have to move. They pitch and that's all they do really. So they don't have the same movement requirements. A basketball athlete has to do a lot of changes of direction, stop and start and things like that. But you know they jump so much more than tennis players. They're so much more explosive vertically, whereas most tennis players are more explosively many times laterally, multi-directionally. Um, so there isn't one sport you know that you can easily say volleyball similar in many respects to basketball. It's smallish positions. Um, which is useful for tennis players to train like that. But there's a lot more vertical movements, a lot more knee-related pain, a lot more Achilles, ankle-type stuff, calf problems. Uh, we don't see as much of that in the tennis athletes. So typically how I've always done it is I've taken the best from some of these other sports. So we do a lot of stuff that pictures do for tennis players. We do a lot of stuff that basketball athletes do for the lower body. Um, we do a lot of stuff that soccer players do. Uh, same with football quarterbacks, they actually have a lot of similarities to tennis players in what they do. They have to move in short distances, they have to re- react and respond to an oncoming. You know, in tennis it's a ball, but in in quarterbacks it's a person coming at them, and they have to react. And then they have to throw a lot, and they have to use their upper upper body a lot. So there's a lot of things that we try to utilize from other sports that can make us better at what we do. And then discus and shot put are two and javelin are three real sports that we've also taken a lot of information from over the years that helps us train our tennis players so it's a great question and at a young age i'd say play everything play as many different sports as you can that are in similar type footprints to tennis in some respects and make sure that as you age up you're able to sort of pick and choose Um, the ones that are most appropriate for your body and for your time constraints as well.
0: Yeah, it's neat how you can kind of take different things from different sports for certain aspects. I think I recall you describing the serve as as like a shot put uh, pretty Mm -hmm. much. So um, Yeah, yeah. it's
2: closer to a shot put or a javelin throw Mm -hmm. than it is to say a baseball pitch. Um, So, you know, it's uh, it's important to understand that just because it's an overhead motion, doesn't mean it's identical to all all overhead motions are not the same.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. In, in terms of um players who are training at home, I was wondering if there are uh you know maybe like 3 to 5 uh or however many you think um pieces of equipment that you think that you know serious tennis players who want to train at home should not should not not have <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah,
2: no, it's, it's great. So We usually talk about this based on budget. You know, how much money do you want to spend? If you've got, you know, thousands of dollars, you can put together an awesome, awesome gym and never have to leave your spare room, garage, wherever you have it. Um, If you only have $50, you can get bands, um, you know, some bands, and you can pretty much do a full-body workout for tennis with bands for less than $50. -hmm. Um, So it all comes down to how much do you want to spend? The more resources you have the more var- variables you can bring in you can bring in med balls which are really valuable and useful for rotational power um for you know stability for some different things uh but especially in the rotation aspect bands uh, are great because you can do rotational work you can do pressing you can do pulling you can do lower body upper body uh injury prevention so you can get everything done with bands um if you've got you know th- dumbbells um and you can do a set of dumbbells you know usually for most tennis players that we're talking about you don't need to go past about 50 pounds for most people you can do pretty much everything with 50 pounds or less and there's ways to make let's say you're really strong and you could probably handle more there's ways to make those 50 pounds even heavier by putting bands on those dumbbells to increase the resistance so you know and there's things called power blocks or um, dumbbells that don't take up much space either so you don't need a whole rack of dumbbells you can have one handle that has a series of weights that you click in or click out based on how much weight you want um so as an at-home suggestion those would be my three or four things that could easily get you everything you need for as little as say 30 to 50 dollars um, all the way up to, say, $500 if you included the dumbbells and the med balls and you had the whole package, and then you can go even higher than that and you can start, you know, adding things on top of that. But in general, for most people, you can get a phenomenal workout in, and that's what we do with most of our pros when we're on the road. We'll take a small bag of stuff and, you know, we'll get a really good workout in. A TRX is another one. Uh, you know, if, if most people haven't seen that, it's that yellow... Uh, device with usually black handles um, it looks like a rope really and it, you can hook it to an attachment and you can do hundreds of various exercises on that um, so it's called a suspension trainer a body weight trainer sometimes people will call it and that allows you to do hundreds of exercises on it so it's not really a major cost limitation to getting yourself in great shape you just sort of have to understand what you like uh, what you're willing to do and get on a really solid program as well.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah. In terms of the dumbbells, I, I think, was it maybe last year or a year and a half ago, I got these um, core, was it core home fitness, like you said, the where you can just click on the different weights and that's been really great, uh, saved a lot of space and everything. Um, so things like that. In terms of core training, Mark, I also heard you and Jason talk about this and the importance and how we have to train uh, our core is the proper way, you know, there's, you doing like a thousand sit-ups and stuff like that may not be the best thing. So I was wondering, what, what is the optimal way for us to train our core? I mean, they could be, you know, exercises you could let us know about or any other information so that we can properly train our core for tennis.
2: So, yeah, it's interesting because I've been doing this a reasonable amount of time now, nearly two decades. And you, it you go through these phases where certain exercises become frowned upon or certain groups of people say this is a bad exercise to do you should Mm -hmm. stay away from this exercise and like crunches and sit-ups and things like that have sort of got a bit of a bad uh, rep over the last say five years or so Uh, a lot of people are talking about you know all you need to do is planks or plank variations basically isometric exercises so you're doing variations on a plank or other um it's called anti-rotation training um which is Another way to call it is isometrics or variations on mm. isometrics. So you're not crunching. Um, and some of that came about from some research. There's some really good research that was done on the spine and how many flexions and extensions a spine can do over a lifetime. And there's sort of a break point. You only have a certain number before your disc break down and things like that. Mm. And there's some truth to that. Um, the challenge is your sport requires you in tennis especially to flex, extend laterally flex laterally extend so you're moving in all these different positions to hit a tennis ball a ton of times so you need to find that balance between we do some flexion we do some extension we do some lateral movements and we do a lot of you know anti-rotation isometric work as well so we make sure we hit everything uh because that's kind of what you need on the tennis court you need to be able to be strong in all these different movements uh, you also need to ha- resist movement sometimes, meaning that if you're over-rotating, let's say you're coming out of a forehand rapidly falling to your left for a right-hander, you need to have oblique strength and an anti-rotation strength in that direction, otherwise you'd fall over. So you mm-hmm. need to train a lot of the times in the reverse of what the movement is that you're training. Many people, when they say, hey, I'm training for my forehand and they will do a med ball throw or they'll do a as kind of like a, you know, a, a twisting med ball exercise or something like that, thinking that they're training their forehand and then they do the same training their backhand. What we just spent a lot of time on is actually training the reverse, meaning that they'd have to hold against resistance at the end range of where their med ball drill would have finished. And the goal there is to make sure that they're really strong in those end ranges, predominantly in that rotation situation or that flexion-extension situation, so they're strong enough to stabilize in those positions. And that's really important from an injury prevention standpoint as well.
0: Very interesting. So, uh, yeah, it just seems like we just need to do a whole different mix of things from crunches to Russian twists to you know, med ball work, and that all just will help because we're doing all those different things when we play.
2: Let's assuming you don't have any significant degeneration. So it's important, mm. especially for the population that we've been talking about, the sort of league player, just be careful because if you have had weakness, if you had had issues, you do have to be very careful. So for a lot of individuals, make sure that you get on a program based on your structural limitations, your deficiencies, prior surgeries, things like that, because a lot of people don't want to flex or extend too much because they've had disc problems in the past or there's issues there. So we spend way more time with those athletes in in some of these more controlled environments. So it's just important to make that note, but for a healthy individual, you need to be strong in all these different areas. You just don't want to overdo it. Like you said, a thousand crunches is usually, is not a good idea for most people. Normally we're talking about, you know, 20 to 50 type range, and then we'll do a different movement. So we're not doing, you know, hundreds or thousands at a time, even though it's a lot of athletes that have been successful doing a thousand crunches a day. Um, You know, so it's one of those situations that there's certain body types that adapt to that well and can handle it. But then there's also a risk to a lot of people if they try to copy uh, a program like that, just because it worked for a really good athlete doesn't mean it's going to work for you.
0: Yeah, 100 percent, Mark. Mark, I uh, really have enjoyed chatting with you. I know I've got a bunch of stuff to do today, but uh, I do want to, first off, ask you uh, again, I know you mentioned it initially, but where can people, you know, check out your content? What is the best place or places to go to uh, to learn more about what you do?
2: Yeah, so we have a couple different resources available. If you go to uh or at Kovacs Institute on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, um, we post quite a bit of stuff on there. We have a weekly newsletter that goes out on Wednesdays, a lot of free content there. So if you haven't signed up for that, go to com. sign up for the free email. Uh, we send out a bunch of stuff there. Uh, and you know, that's probably the easiest way uh, to communicate and to get in touch with us.
0: Awesome, awesome. Uh, and just wanna give you the floor if there's um, any other final closing thoughts you, you might have in regards to um, uh, tennis fitness for um, competitive adult tennis players?
2: Yeah, f- for sure. The one thing I would suggest is work with a competent and well-trained professional. Um, we're also involved in the International Tennis Performance Association uh, and there are thousands of qualified and competent, you know, tennis-specific fitness trainers, strength coaches, personal trainers, athletic trainers, physical therapists that work predominantly with tennis athletes and are well trained so go to itpa- tennis.org uh, and you know ask if there's someone in your area if you're looking for someone uh, and we we'll should be able to direct you to a good person in your area who can help you on designing and implementing an effective tennis specific training program
0: awesome yeah itpa is, is brilliant uh, another one of your creations mark <laughs> so thank you for that Mark, thanks again for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to chatting with you again. It's always a, a pleasure and thanks so much for sharing uh your knowledge with uh with our audience. So thank you so much.
2: No, uh, thanks so much for having me and look forward to seeing everyone on the courts soon.
0: Definitely. Thanks, Mark. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Mark Kovacs. Again, Dr. Kovacs, thanks so much for your time and for coming on to the podcast. And if you'd enjoyed this podcast and got value from it and think it will help your tennis fitness, then I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the podcast. And you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app choice that you use to listen to the show. It would really help the podcast out and help spread it Uh, and make it more visible to more people. Uh, The more reviews and ratings, um, the higher up the algorithm it goes. And so I definitely would appreciate a review and also just know what you think of the show. I would also like to leave you with a quote as I often do, pretty much always do at the end of the podcast. And this one is by Michael Altshuler. And Michael said, the bad news is time flies. The good news is you're the pilot. Love that. Just reminds us that we need to take control of our path in life, in tennis, and everything, and that we should not be reactionary. Rather, we should take command and choose how we use our time and uh, make the most out of it. You know, schedule it, schedule things in your calendar, your practices, and everything like that, um, your work, and so forth, and uh, execute and prosper. Live long and prosper, as Spock said. Uh, as you can tell, I like Star Trek. All right, <laughs> hope you do too. Star Wars vs. Star Trek, which one is it? Hmm? You can answer that for yourself. Uh, and you can email me if you want. It's it's fine. Just let me know. All right, that was a weird uh, tangent that I went on, but you know, I'm a sci-fi fan, and so let's just put that in there for any folks that like it. All right. With that, thanks so much for listening to the end. You're a true warrior if you did and uh, a tennis fanatic, and uh, I appreciate that. So with that, I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is your host, Mirabon Aranshad, signing out.
1: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.